You're about to hear the 3CR Community Radio podcast of N Psychedelia. For more information on this show, head to 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook, Twitter, or find us on our website. Good afternoon. This is Encyclopedia on Sunday, the uh, 6th of September, I believe. Uh, my name's Nick. Uh, I'm your uh, host for this afternoon, and we've got a jam-packed show. We're going to be uh, catching up with Johan Hari a bit later in the program, who is man of the minute on uh, drug issues. He's the author of Chasing the Scream. He will be uh, speaking live in Melbourne this uh, this Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday evening, um, alongside uh, Fiona Patton from the Australian Sex Party, Greg Denham from Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, Annie Madden from the Australian Injecting and Drug Users League, and that will all be hosted by John uh, Safran. So that'll be on Wednesday night. We'll be we'll, we've got a few more announcements about that a little bit uh, later on. Uh, you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Thank you to Freedom of Species. They will be back from one o'clock next week. And uh, if you want more information on any of the shows that you hear on 3CR, head to the uh, uh, 3cr.org.au, the website. Uh, you can get to the Encyclopedia uh, program page there and you can get in touch with us. Uh, now, uh, news. News for the week. <laughs> Let's get stuck into it. Ash, okay. welcome to the program. <laughs> so this week there was uh, a little bit of a different coverage from the medical uh, fraternity. Uh, clinical director at Melbourne's Eastern Health, Dr. Matthew Frey, also president of addiction chapter of the Royal Australian College of Physicians, has uh, called out the, the problem, the growing problem with prescription drug abuse. Uh, he's quoted as saying in news.com.au, the pharmaceutical industry is encouraging doctors to prescribe pills, and that's fine, but teaching and awareness hasn't kept pace with marketing. There's been a 180% increase in the prescription of oxycodone between 2002 and 2009, and the Australian Medical Association has called prescription drug abuse a national emergency. Um, Prescription drugs were involved in 82% of the 384 fatal overdose deaths investigated by the Vic Coroner's Court in 2014, which is highly relevant this week with Monday just gone being International Overdose Awareness uh, Day. And there's, uh, there was another piece published along similar lines in The Guardian this week, uh, again on overprescription of antipsychotic drugs, but this time for people with uh, what was called challenging behaviour. This is people with autism, epilepsy, dementia, uh, dementia and other men mental illnesses. And uh, what was being said in the piece is that uh, oftentimes people are being prescribed where they probably don't actually need it as a way to incapacitate or make people more uh, controllable or more manageable, uh, which is probably lacking in ethics somewhere along the line. <laughs> yeah, this was also covered in a piece in the conversation, and it was uh, quoted there that 70% of people that were prescribed an antipsychotic drug by GPs didn't have a diagnosis of severe mental illness. And at the bottom of the piece, it really came around to the, the point of the article, and that's that convenience shouldn't override clinical best practice. Absolutely. Uh, this week, we're also remembering uh, Dr. Oliver Sacks, fantastic, uh, fantastic neurologist. He passed away on Sunday at the age of 82 uh, after a, a battle with cancer. Uh, but he was working up until just about his uh, last moments. I, I think he was writing some pieces earlier this year on, uh, on dealing with cancer and his impending death. Um, this is just a short snippet from Oliver Sacks' YouTube channel. 
Although, although I can't claim very lofty motives in in my drag taking, it did occur to me that there might be a bonus uh, that I might have ex- that the drags might sensitise me to experiences of a sort my patients could have, and I certainly felt that very strongly. Um, when I came to see migraine patients and they described all sorts of geometrical patterns and colours which, uh, which I was very familiar with. Uh, w- w- such colours and patterns are often the, the prelude to more complex hallucinations with drugs, though sometimes if one closes one's eyes, they're the only differences. Um, also, when I came to work with my awakenings patients, some of these patients um, had extraordinary sensory experiences which are um, of time stopping uh, of motion being split up into a series of separate stills um, which which I think is almost unimaginable but I I had experienced that myself on LSD and and I knew what they were talking about and and I knew how confounding it was so um, on the one hand, one bonus then of drug experiences was that it allowed me to, to be more empathic and to understand f- from my own experiences what various patients were going through. Queensland Health Minister Cameron Dick got in a bit of trouble this week when he was asked why there were minimal programs for addicted youth and his spokesperson said that that was because minors only experiment with drugs and weren't dependent. Hmm. So a little bit of naivety from the other side of the fence there. Uh, Excellent piece this week. Did I already mention the Drug Policy Alliance piece? No, no, we were talking about it before. (laughs) I'm getting confused. Drug Policy Alliance uh, published a piece from one of their interns, a 15-year-old who wrote an excellent piece for Huffington Post on uh, drug education, and she said that focusing on the drug use only or relying on stereotypes doesn't allow for a deeper conversation. Drug users become... uh, Oh, drug user becomes lazy shorthand for what may be a range of other issues from depression to peer pressure to simple teenage curiosity. Out in the Yarra Ranges, there's been a uh, operation to catch drug drivers, and Unit Commander John Morgan uh, was quoted as saying that every case was an accident waiting to happen, and in a rare admission, he's quoted in the Herald Sun as saying, if they are driving a vehicle one or two weeks later and they get drug tested, that drug is still going to be in their system, Mm. which uh, is in line with what we covered from Senator Leinhelm in his piece in the Huffington Post-Australia a couple of weeks back. Uh, The International Centre for Science in Drug Policy published a PDF that is for free download. Uh, The PDF covers common arguments made about cannabis use and regulation, and it's well worth a read because we we just heard one of those common arguments the other day uh, in a debate that we'll be talking about a bit later. Uh, in the Canning by-election, uh, Liberal candidate Andrew Hastie has pledged to form a Canning ICE task force of politicians, police teachers and legal experts, establishing community forums and supporting Abbott's Dobbin a Dealer program. When asked by journalists why his program would work when other similar programs had failed, he kind of floundered a bit until a journalist suggested that maybe it would work because it was him that was in charge. And... <laughs> Uh, Justice Minister Michael Keenan said that that was the case because he's a soldier and a man of action. However, he hasn't actually pledged any action other than talking. 
Psychedelic Press in the UK uh, have an essay published this week on the idea of creating a psychedelic society. And this, this idea goes back about 40 or 50 years to people like uh, Terence McKenna and Aldous Huxley, uh, it's sort of rooted in that. Uh, so he covers the history of the idea in the essay, but also uh, critiques it and, and has some more modern reflections on what it even means to have a psychedelic society. Very interesting piece from Psychedelic Press in the UK. Uh, you're on 3CR. This is In Psychedelia. Uh, if you want more information uh, on any of the news stories that we've been talking about, head along to our Facebook page, facebook.com uh, forward slash in psychedelia. And, and uh, if there are news articles that are of particular in- interest to our uh, listeners, please let us know. There's always a lot happening in the area and there's always things that we might miss. So mm. if you see a news article that you think of as interest, please pass it on to us. Absolutely. We'll be catching up with Johan Hari shortly. Uh, we've got a competition some stuff to give away for the first time ever and uh, also talking about a marijuana debate from this week. This is Stinkwood with a section from one of their live sets. Thank you. 
This is in Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855am streaming at 3cr.org.au and also available on the digital. I'm standing here in quite a uh, diverse crowd at the Frankston Arts Centre. I'm here for the Monash University Debating Club's uh, uh, debate entitled Marijuana is Now the Time to Legalise. Um, hoping that we can get a recording of the event, um, but we may not be able to because you might be able to hear. There's a lot of people here, and I haven't been able to find the person that's organising it. Um, if not, I will. We will uh, discuss the outcome of the debate on the show probably right after this little segment. But I thought I'd just give you a small taste of the sound of the crowd here. very interested to see how the debate goes. Uh, there are three people for the affirmative, three for the negative. Uh, one person from the affirmative is Greg Denham, who has been a guest on In Psychedelia multiple times. Uh, he's from the Yarra Drug and Health Forum. Uh, and one person for the negative is from an organisation called the Dalgano Institute, who uh, publish resources against any kind of drug law reform. They are an uh, evangelical front organisation. I think it might be fair to say. They might not think it's fair to say, but <laughs> will be an interesting debate. We'll, um, we'll have a discussion shortly. 
This is in Psychedelia. <laughs> if on we, we will have a discussion to- shortly. I'll just talk over myself a bit there. That was uh, from uh, uh, Wednesday night, I believe it was, down at the Frankston Arts Centre. And um, w- we had a, we went along to the debate. I've got the audio. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if I can broadcast yet, but I've got it in my uh, in my backlog, and I'm hoping that we can broadcast at least some of the debates. Um, and uh, Ash, you were you were there along. Impressions from the debate: marijuana is now the time to legalise. Well, yeah, I was really curious to hear the arguments against legalisation. I mean, from where we sit in this room, it seems like a pretty knockdown, sensible argument. Um, so I was really interested to see what people could come up with. And to be honest, I was incredibly disappointed. Mm. In... Any particular reason why you were disappointed? <laughs> well, the second speaker, Dr. Stuart Rees, was probably the worst debater I've ever seen, and I helped found my school's debating club in Year 9, so I've seen a lot of high school debates, and I probably haven't seen a worse debater in, in all of my time. And just, just to give you a quick idea of why this was such a uh, terrible performance by Dr. Stuart Rees, uh, he spoke... So quickly, it was difficult to understand anything what, of what he was saying and jumped from topic to topic, it seemed. I'm pretty sure he mentioned gay, gay marriage somewhere in there as linked into... Yeah, the, it, to was, it was quite drugs. weird. He, he, you know, he very quickly went over some things to do with, like, um, marijuana use affecting, like, sperm and eggs, and but he whizzed through it so with, quickly it was impossible to follow with, with like, With an epileptic snapshot... Uh, yeah, slideshow it going was, on. I, I mean... <laughs> It, it amused me so much I had to excuse myself from the room it because I was laughing people. so hard yep. and I, I couldn't come back into the room for a couple of minutes because I tried to come back into the room and his arguments were just so bad. I, I couldn't, <laughs> I just couldn't hold my composure together. And, and I know it was the same for some of the panel members. Mm. Um, and, and the thing is, if this had have been just, um, just somebody who was new to debating, new to the issue, maybe a Monash uh, student who, who was there, because it was put on by the Monash, Deba- Monash Debaters Club, then uh, we might be able to forgive him for being just a little naive and a little fresh. But this particular man uh, is somebody that's in uh, a position of a lot of power, uh, as we found out over the week. Yeah, I uh, I was curious who he was because I, it just seemed like he was incredibly incompetent and his scientific knowledge just didn't really stand up, at least in the way he presented it. So, so I looked the guy up and he was actually uh, shut down in the early 2000s and under investigation because 25 um, opiate addicts, probably heroin addicts, uh, died after being in his care back in the early 2000s. Um, his method of treatment was to use naltrexone implants. Um, so this is forced abstinence, essentially. Forced yeah. ab- abstinence to the extent where uh, people... I think it actually makes people sick if they have an opiate. Well, it's a, it's an sick. opioid receptor blocker. So I, th- I think it just the, the opioids just don't have an effect. Okay. But the, the problem is it takes people's tolerance back down to zero. So without adequate um, other rehabilitation support. methods and support... People can backslide, which often happens with um, heroin addiction. Is like it's really common to not successfully go through a rehabilitation program on your first attempt, and then when people do go back into use, there's a really big risk of overdose because their tolerance has been taken back down by things like the naltrexone implants. So we're going to have a little bit more of a look into this uh, Dr. Stewart, uh, who who does uh, do some work for an organisation called the Dalgano Institute, which are essentially negative drug propaganda outlet uh, that uh, doesn't seem to have much relevance uh, at all in particular. Uh, Greg is uh, also in the in in the studio, and you've got something to add. Yeah, look, um, 
Uh, I just want to comment briefly on the um, on the naltrexone. Naltrexone and other drugs are actually used properly. They're actually a really really good way of um, assisting people with um, opiate addiction. And um, to be honest with you, I think it's something that um, the industry as a whole needs to uh, really take much better of a look at. Having said that, the real issue that something like this um, underlines is that rehabilitation is a totally unregulated industry in this country and pretty much around the world. Um, I could set myself up, we could set ourselves up as rehabilitation experts with absolutely no training and that is an absolute disaster and uh, you know, some of the stories that I've heard of, um, you know, for example, um, uh, recently, the, um, the Scientologist-based uh, Narconon had to uh, put on a whole disclaimer on their website to uh, remove a whole of the false, false claims they'd been making. Mm. Uh, yeah, as I was looking into uh, Dr. Reese, um, one of the things that came up was that he actually argued for uh, not much regulation uh, in t- to do with the naltrexone implants, and then... Consequently, 25 people ended up dead. So I think regulation is important in that. So we we will have a little bit more of a look into this. And there are other people out there in in, uh, uh, drug issues and drug treatment issues which are... uh, Terrible people, and they, they basically need to be uh, highlighted so that people know who these people are, so that you know who these people are, uh, so that we can start to hold them to some sort of account because I think they get away with it because uh, drug users are a highly uh, ostracizable, a highly stigmatizable uh, crowd, and it's, it's very easy to get away with that sort of thing when you're a scumbag. Uh, this is 3CR <laughs> Community Radio, 855 AM. Uh, you're listening to In Psychedelia. Uh, it's also on digital and streaming live at 3CR. .org.au where you can head along to the program page and if you do uh, head along to our website you can uh, find it from the program page uh, we are running a competition there's uh, some tickets to give away for Johan Hari he is uh, uh, speaking in Melbourne on Wednesday night at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre from 6.30 and what we're looking for is your harm reduction tips that you apply to yourself or um, perhaps among a group of friends uh, in order to avoid harms associated with your use of drugs and I I'm including alcohol, caffeine, etc. here. We don't hold prejudices against which drug of choice is yours. Uh, so uh, there's a bit of information on the website about it. Uh, we want an email from you, uh, including your full name, address, contact number, contact email, and just one or two paragraphs describing a harm reduction measure or tip that you and or your peers apply when you're taking a drug. We'll be announcing winners on the Facebook page on Tuesday night and then uh, Wednesday is uh, is the day. And we'll be speaking to Johan Hari in just a tick on In Psychedelia. This is In Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on digital and also streaming live at 3cr.org.au. You're listening to In Psychedelia. My name's Nick Wallace and we're joined now by Johan Hari. He's a British writer and journalist. Uh, he's written for The Independent in London and The Huffington Post and more recently he's published the book Chasing the Scream, which looks into the history and effects of the global war on drugs. Uh, the book has generated interest across the world as our conversation about drug policy is shifting away from outright prohibition and towards more pragmatic alternatives. Uh, Johan will be speaking live in Melbourne this Wednesday night at 6.30pm at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre in the Clarendon Auditorium. He's also going to be joined by Law Enforcement Against Prohibition's Greg Denham, the Australian Sex Party and Victorian member of the Legislative Council Fiona Patton, uh, the Australian Injecting and Drug Users League Annie Madden and 
and the event is also going to be hosted by the ABC's John Safran. Tickets are available uh, right now from eventbrite.com. Johan, welcome to the program. Hey, it's great to be with you. So I, 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 you've been quite the man of the moment. I know you've been doing uh, interviews for uh, all sorts of media outlets. And I, I wanted to, uh, first up, rather than asking you one of the questions that you've probably been asked over and over and over, I wanted to, to get your feel for the... Um, for the Australian drug conversation, considering you've had all these interviews, how, how, how has it felt? Do you feel like people are, are moving away from prohibition assumptions and away from this kind of fear and, uh, and abstinence uh, movement? Or what's been your feel? I think it's a really weird mixture. On the one hand, this is a pretty libertarian country. You've got a um, very sensible approach on lots of, th- uh, lots of things among ordinary people. Uh, on the other hand, you're in the middle of this bizarre hysteria about ICE, which is based on a whole load of ridiculous... The fact that the police can routinely claim as a fact in Australia that there is a drug that gives human beings, and these are their words, superhuman strength, tells you something about the magical thinking that's informing this debate. Here's a clue for your listeners. There is nothing that makes humans superhuman. We don't live in a Marvel's comic, right? The, the, but it's this bizarre... So I think you've got a mixture of... The, and this very often happens. It's the ebb and tide of drug reform, right? You get a move towards more and more sensible policies, and then you get a claim that there's this uniquely evil new chemical for which we really do need the war on drugs. Now, it's not to say there are definitely real tragedies involving ice addiction, but um, what you're being told about what causes that addiction is ridiculous false and what you're being told about the solution to that ice problem will in fact make that ice problem much worse and condemn far more people to becoming addicts make far more addicts lives worse and lead to a whole load of drug related violence prohibition related violence that i can talk about as well now ice isn't the first drug that had that's had that uh, that claim landed uh, at it or thrown at it uh, in fact there seems to be a bit of a, a, a whole history of that particular claim of a drug giving people superhuman strength have you, have you got a bit of a, a background on the, on the history of that? Yeah, it was super interesting looking through the archives of this. In the book, I tell the story. It's mainly the story of this journey I made over 30,000 miles and over 12 different countries to find out what's really going on in the war on drugs, what really causes uh, addiction, what's really done to drug users, the vast majority of whom are not addicts. But yeah, it was really interesting to look at the history of how this all began. And really, this myth begins, this myth that if you see where it starts... Uh, There was, in Florida, in the late 20s, a 21-year-old boy called Victor LaCarta hacked his family to death with an axe. And at the time, Harry Anslinger, who was this government bureaucrat, had taken over the Department of Alcohol Prohibition, just as alcohol prohibition is ending. And he needs to find a new purpose and something to keep his department in business. He had previously said cannabis was not harmful, not addictive, he didn't have a problem with it. He suddenly announced that cannabis is worse than heroin, the worst drug in the world. And uh, literally the worst drug in the world. He said if the monster Frankenstein bumped into the monster cannabis on the staircase, he would drop dead of fright. And he announced that what happened in Victor, with Victor Lacarta was the result of cannabis. That cannabis A, gave you superhuman strength and B, made you psychotic so you would go and kill people. Anyone who's seen the Reef of Madness film, that was him. He pioneered Reef madness and with the kind of fox news of its day which is hearst newspapers he um 
he basically launches this whole demonization and scare campaign. Years later, someone goes back and looks at the psychiatric files for Victor Licata. There's not even any evidence he used cannabis, of course. He, in fact, had had terrible insanity in his family. His family had been told to institutionalize him years before, and they had refused to. But it's interesting, as this myth becomes discredited with one drug, it skips on to the next drug. So it begins with cannabis. When you can no longer say it about cannabis, it skips on to heroin. When you can no longer say it about heroin, because people know enough people who've used heroin to know it's not true, it skips on to cocaine. When it can no longer be said about cocaine, it skips on to crack. When it can no longer be said about crack, it skips on to crystal meth, or as you guys call it in Australia, ice. Really important to keep going back to the facts. Professor Carl Hart at Columbia University has looked at this very carefully. And this is a fact you have to keep telling people. 85% of people who use methamphetamine or, crystal or ice do not become addicted. 85%. For the vast majority of drugs, the ratio is exactly the same. If you, even the UN Office of Drug Control, who are the main drug war body in the world, their slogan is a drug-free world, we can do it, which tells you something about where they are in the debate. Even they admitted a couple of years ago 90% of currently illegal drug use is what they call non-problematic, meaning it doesn't cause addiction, it doesn't harm the individual's health. Now, that, I think one of the most pernicious effects of the war on drugs is it creates this hugely distorted picture of drug use for kind of obvious reason. You might well put on Facebook tonight, I had a great bottle of wine last night, or even, you know, I had some great vodka shots on Saturday night. You'd be quite unlikely to put on Facebook, I had a great line of coke last night, or, <laughs> you know, I had a great night on ice. And that's partly because, well, under prohibition, it would be very foolish. You might lose your job, you might get someone might ring the police, certainly people would look at you a bit funny. So you end up with this hugely distorted picture of drug use. It would be as if the only thing we ever heard about alcohol was homeless alcoholics in the gutter. And we thought, oh, that's what alcohol does to people. It doesn't mean we... Now, we still have to understand what does happen. It's not, this is not in any way to undermine... Look, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because one of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And mm -hmm. as I got older, realising we had drug addiction in my family, it's really important we understand what genuinely causes addiction. I can talk about that if you like. It's absolutely not what we think, and it's not evil chemical hooks that hijack the addict's brain and turn them into monsters or superhumans or all these things that you're being told on which Tony Abbott and your government more generally and even people, more benevolent people like Jackie Lambie are basing their, uh, their advice for what should be done with the laws and legal structure of Australia. It, it's interesting because um, the whole the whole narrative that gets constructed around drugs is is one that we actually are familiar with in society, but it's not something we've seen for for hundreds of years. And there's a uh, an academic in Australia whose name is uh, Desmond Manderson, and he published a piece about 15 years ago uh, called. Uh, Possession, where he, he actually drew a comparison between how uh, sort of witchcraft and witches were, were treated um, as, as a way to sort of scapegoat uh, attacking just women that people didn't like hundreds of years ago and, and what we now see as, uh, as people, as, as the drug narrative and also demonic possession. So there's this idea that a drug has this spirit in it, that it, it actually goes into people and takes control of them 
and changes them from somebody that they were into somebody completely different, which which is it's a strange schism because then we're, we're not talking about we're not talking really about people and we're not talking about a drug anymore. We're talking about uh, a spirit that goes and possesses people. And, and this is the sort of, you know, this is why we end up with things like uh, uh, superhuman strength, you know, uh, people take ice and they get superhuman human strength or, you know, people take bath salts and eat people's faces off, even though that, again, was a, another discredited thing. Um, I'm wondering if you can uh, talk to that a little bit about this uh, this notion of something external possessing somebody's will and 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 uh, and hijacking them if you will the tragedy of it you're totally right and i don't think it's a coincidence that we end up using all these religious words to describe uh drugs like spirits and ecstasy and you know it's very revealing and actually even 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 the notion of the crime of possession to possess something is you know you you are possessing the future crime of having that drug and doing something bad apparently totally and you can really see that talking the book about you know this place called the temple of eleusis that for two thousand years was a was a place basically burning man for ancient Greece. It's like 18 miles outside Athens, and every year people would gather there and they'd do this kind of, engage in this kind of bacchanalian revelry. You know, you'd pass around this hallucinogenic drug and everyone would drink it and there'd be this kind of huge intoxication party. And, uh, and it was shut down by Christianity. When Christianity becomes the official religion, um, it, it's shut down because one of the things you always see is religion and drugs are in a sense competing for the same headspace and what they don't want is for people to be able to get a shortcut to the state of ecstasy and reverie that they say you should only get from religion and it's one of the reasons why you know when the spanish uh, when the conquistadors first uh, invade latin america uh, you know well, the first thing they do is shut down the local hallucinogenic rites because they want people to only be able to get it through communion and so on you, they, they don't want these things to happen so i think you're right and you see a lot of the movement towards prohibition both of alcohol and other drugs comes from the temperance movement and comes from this belief that alternative forms of ecstasy and reverie are unacceptable and evil and have to be stopped and all of this is a distraction from what really does cause addiction in fact the tragedy is it makes addiction worse so if you look at when addiction does actually happen you know i've talked a lot about this and it's something that really blew my mind um, it's not something I understood before I started doing the research for this, is, um, you know, if you'd said to me four years ago, what causes heroin addiction? You know, I think I would have looked at you like you were a bit stupid. I would say, obviously, right heroin causes heroin addiction. <laughs> exactly. We've been told for 100 years this story that's become totally part of our common sense, which is, you know, if you, me, and the next 20 people to walk past your studio all took heroin together for 20 days, because there are chemical hooks in heroin, our body would start to physically need it, we desperately crave it, and when we were deprived of it, we would be left with this ravenous hunger, and that's what addiction is. And the first thing that led to me to saying not right about that is when it was explained to me, when this interview's over, I step out into the street and get hit by a truck, and I'll be taken, and break my hip. I'll be taken to hospital, and I'll be given loads of diamorphine for the pain. Diamorphine is heroin, right? It's actually much better heroin than you're going to get from a dealer, because it's medically pure, whereas the stuff you get from a dealer is obviously contaminated, and not much of it is actually heroin. Um, now, if what we believe about addiction is right, what should happen? A lot of those people, at least some of them, should become addicts, right? This has been studied very carefully. It, it virtually never happens. And when I learned that, I thought, oh, this, I didn't understand it. It just didn't seem to make sense to me. Until 
I went and interviewed this guy called Bruce Alexander, who's a professor of psychology in Vancouver. And, and Professor Alexander explained to me, this idea of addiction we've got in our heads comes partly from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really easy experiments to do. Your listeners can do it at home today if they're feeling a bit cruel. <laughs> um, you get a rat and you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself quite quickly. So there you go, right? That's our story about addiction. But in the 70s, Professor Alexander comes along and says, well, hang on a minute. We're putting this rat in an empty cage. It's got nothing to do except use these drugs. Let's try this differently. So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats, right? <laughs> Anything a rat could want in life, it's got in Rat Park. It's got cheese, it's got colored balls, it's got tunnels, it's got loads of friends, it can have loads of sex. And it's got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. But this is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They almost never use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. There's loads of human examples I can give you, but what this tells us is addiction is not about the chemicals. Addiction is about your cage. It's not a disease. It's an adaptation to your environment. If you are in an unbearable situation where you are cut off from meaning, and that can be as true if you're a Wall Street banker as if you're a homeless person, you will bond and connect with some kind of behavior that will give you some kind of relief. That could be, you know... Um, you know, pornography, it could be gambling, it could be ice, it could be alcohol. But the underlying dynamic is the same. The core of addiction is about not being able to bear to be present in your life. And when you know that, suddenly the insanity of the war on drugs becomes clear. If pain and isolation are major drivers of addiction, inflicting more pain and more isolation on an addict isn't going to make them better, it's actually going to make them worse. I never forget, I went to this prison in Arizona called Tent City. I write about this in Chasing the Scream, where... You know, women are made to go out on a chain gang wearing T-shirts saying I was an addict and forced to dig graves while members of the public jeer at them. It's one of the worst things I've ever seen. But when I went back to the prison, I said there's this place the women are terrified of called The Hole, which is the solitary confinement block. And I said to the guards, will you show me The Hole? I was sure they wouldn't. And they did. They took me there. And I went there and I looked at these women who were literally put in tiny little cages alone with nothing for a month. And I suddenly thought, this is the closest you could ever get to a literal human reenactment of the cages that guaranteed addiction in rats. And yet this is what we do to, to them struggling with to, to thinking it'll make them stop. Mm. It's it's insane. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. This is In Psychedelia, and we're speaking now with Johan Hari, who will be speaking live in Melbourne this Wednesday night at the uh, Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. Tickets available from eventbrite.com. And, uh, Johan, one of the things that you... you um, uh, you sort of one of your main quotes from the book is the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety it's connection and and that's well demonstrated through um the the example of rat park that when the rats have connection they are less likely to be addicted showing that the problem isn't that if if people tell or if rats or if any animal takes this certain drug then it overcomes their brain possesses their will and they become an automaton who uh is controlled by this drug uh, 
there, what, what people actually need is, is connection. Uh, we were actually speaking with um, Mark Lewis, who I, I believe you've spoken to this mm, week as well. Yeah, I like um, Mark a lot. Yeah. Mark's he, very, very good on the topic. And we were speaking with him uh, last week about, um, about the nature of addiction and the way that we think about it at the moment as, uh, as a disease. I actually heard it described by an Australian politician as a disease of the will. And I thought that was an interesting wow. thing to say because um, uh, a, dis- a disease of the will, that, that certainly highlights that he thinks it's a moral issue. Uh, so it's connection. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about why connection uh, Why connection is, is the thing that's, that's needed above, uh, above uh, to, to help people that are struggling with addiction of any kind, not just to drugs, but... There's a danger when we talk about this, it can sound a bit abstract or something. And I think it's really important to understand there's nothing, if we're listening to this, there's nothing abstract about this. We can look at real places. I went to 12 countries and I've been to 12 countries to look into this now. And I've been to places that try, every different approach has been tried by now. And I think the place that illustrates exactly what you're saying is Portugal. In the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in Europe. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin. And every year they tried the drug war more, they arrested and imprisoned more people. And every year the problem got worse. One day the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition got together and they said, basically, we can't carry on like this, what are we going to do? And they decided to set up a panel of scientists and doctors to look at all this evidence, including Rat Park, and figure out what would genuinely solve the problem. So they went away, led by this amazing doctor that I got to know called Huao Gulao. And they came back and they said, decriminalise all drugs, from cannabis to ice. But, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we used to spend on making addicts' lives worse and spend it instead on making their lives better. And it's interesting, it's not really what we think of as drug treatment. I know that you, like me, are very sceptical of the rehab industry and the way of uh, talking about it as a disease. It's really interesting what they did in Portugal. So they do pay for a bit of residential rehab, long-term residential rehab, not short-term, which is completely useless. Um, and they do pay for a bit of psychological support, but the biggest thing they did is the opposite of what we do in Britain and Australia and the US. We give addicts criminal records that cut them off further, right? We make it really hard for them to get back to the legal economy. What they did in Portugal was set up a massive program of job creation for addicts. Say you used to be a mechanic. They'll go to a garage and they'll say... <clears throat> If you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages. The goal was to make sure that every addict in Portugal had something to get out of bed for in the morning. Mm. They set up a huge program of uh, microloans for addicts to set up small businesses. They wanted to say to every addict, you are valued, we want you, we need you. And as the addicts got back to a sense of purposeful life, um, they started to form connections, they started to get back into relationships. It's now been 15 years since, it'll be very soon, it'll be 15 years since this experiment began. The results are in. Injecting drug use in Portugal is down by 50%. Addiction is massively down. Overdose is massively down. Um, HIV transmission among addicts is massively down. Street crime is massively down. One of the ways you know it's worked so well is that virtually no one in Portugal wants to go back. I went and interviewed this guy called Juan Figuera. He's the top drug cop in Portugal. And he led the opposition to the decriminalization at the time when it happened. Uh, you know, And he said the things that loads of people, you know, say the whole time. Surely this will lead to a complete disaster. Uh, he said to me, everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything the other side said would happen did. And he talked about how he felt ashamed that he'd spent 20 years arresting and uh, making addicts worse before the decriminalisation. And he hoped the whole world followed Portugal's example. 
and it's really important to understand everywhere I've been where they've moved beyond the drug war, you know, there's a real sense of relief when people see the alternatives. And actually, I think it's important to talk as well about one of the most catastrophic effects of the drug war here in Australia, uh, which is really under-debated, which is the incredible amount of violence caused by drug prohibition in this country, right? Uh, I tell the story in Chasing the Screen mainly of the violence caused by prohibition, mainly through two people I got to know, Chino Hardin, who's a transgender crack dealer in Brownsville, Brooklyn, and Rosalio Retta, who's a, who was a hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel, Los Letas, who I got to know. He's in prison now. Um, and, I, and I went to Juarez, one of the deadliest cities in the world mm. at the time. And um, But the dynamic is the same, and it's playing out here in Australia. I'll give you two examples, right? Um, a couple of, uh, just from the last few weeks, a small-time drug dealer called Harvey Spence um, suspected someone he knew being a police informant. Actually, it turns out he wasn't. So he drove him out to the countryside in Johnsonville and suffocated him to death, burned his body in a shed, dumped the ashes in the Tambo River. The judges said, the judge at the time said it was one of the most horrible deaths he could imagine. Uh, in Calgary, four men were accused of physically dismembering a 24-year-old man called Bo Davis for being a rival drug seller. I could go on and on, Dan. This is one of the biggest drivers of the murder rate in Australia. And if people want to understand how this is related to the drug war, this is entirely caused by the drug war. Um, picture this. If you or me, when we finished speaking, decided we want to go and steal a bottle of vodka, um, we went to a local liquor store and they caught us, uh, that liquor store would call the police and the police would take us away. So that store doesn't need to be violent. It doesn't need to be intimidating. Mm. It you know, has the, the law to back up its property rights. If, however, you and I decided we wanted to steal some weed or some coke, and that guy catches us, obviously he can't call the police, right? The police would arrest him. He has to be violent and intimidating. He has to establish his patch by violence, and he has to defend his patch by violence. Now, you don't want to be having a fight every day, so you've got to establish a reputation for being such a badass that no one will dare to come and take you on. Now, that dynamic... But the best way of putting it is Charles Bowden, a brilliant American writer, said, the war on drugs creates a war for drugs. And there is this really misleading term used by the Australian media sometimes where they talk about drug-related violence. Mm. And that implies that what's happened in, say, those cases I just talked about is someone used drugs, lost the plot, and attacked someone. That does happen sometimes. It's around 2 to 7% of what's described as drug-related violence. All the rest, the vast majority, is in fact prohibition-related violence. It's dealers killing each other or people who get in the way or cops to control the patch. Well, that's not drug-related. I mean, if we banned milk and people still wanted milk, that, that violence would surround the milk trade. That's the result of prohibition. Al Capone wasn't getting drunk and killing people. He was fighting for control of a prohibited market. And if you want to know why it ends, ask yourself, where are the violent alcohol dealers in Chicago today? They don't exist. Alcohol hasn't changed. What's changed is the system of regulation. All this violence, the, one of the biggest drivers of murder in Australia and the worst murders in Australia, that can be ended. By just changing our tact. You're listening to 3CR yeah. Community Radio. This is in Psychedelia. My name's Nick. We're speaking to Johan Hari at the moment. Uh, he's the author of Chasing the Scream, uh, a book 
uh, looking at the uh, at the history and the effects of the global war on drugs, and we were just talking about uh, some of the effects of creating a huge, a multi-billion-dollar, probably multi-trillion-dollar. I don't know the, the figures. Huge industry, global industry, uh, selling and buying and growing and producing drugs uh, without the ability uh, for any kind of uh, normal regulation, where where we can uh, resolve our disputes through uh, a, a non-violent means. Uh, so instead, uh, what ends up happening is is people resort to violence. And I think one of the one of the dirtiest things about prohibition, one of the dirtiest tricks that's pulled in the discussion, is that there are plenty of good people who use drugs. In fact, probably the majority of people who use drugs are good people, are active members of their community, probably have have families and have friends. These are good people. And these are people that perhaps, if they were given the ability and the option, they might get involved with, the, with, with a legal and regulated drug market and make it better, better for everyone, look after each other. I think one of the dirtiest tricks is that whenever we have conversations around drugs, it's as if everyone who takes drugs is a bad person and is immoral and incapable. And that, it's, it, that, I think that's the most disgusting thing because we're disempowered. People that use drugs, like myself, get disempowered by that narrative because then we can't come and say, actually, I know how to solve half these problems. I, I've got a good idea of how to, how to get rid of all these problems. Let me, let me do that instead of throwing millions of dollars to the police to lock people up and to the courts to muck around with, uh, you know, with, with court cases for months and years on end. It, it, I, I think that's one of the, the most troubling aspects. Do, do you see a future where perhaps people that use drugs and people that are interested in drugs for reasons other than profit might be able to take back the drug markets and uh, hone them towards something better? Again, there's nothing, I think you put it really well, and there's nothing theoretical about this. It's happened. Look at Spain. In Spain, they have, um, so there's two models of, of legalizing, let's say, cannabis. There's two models of doing it. There's what they've done in Colorado and Washington and what they've done in Spain, and I've seen both. And what they've done in Washington, they're both much better than the drug war, but I much prefer the Spanish model to the Colorado model. Yeah. So in Colorado, they've had um, commercial legalization where you go to a store and you, you, know, you buy a product from a corporation. Um, now, that's a hell of a lot better than buying it from, you know, the Zetas and the Crips and the Bloods, right? It, it's, it's a huge advance and uh, it, it's a really good and positive thing. Um, what they do in Spain, I think, is slightly better, where you, um, you if you want to buy cannabis, you join a social club, uh, and the, it's, which is a non-profit cooperative, and that non-profit cooperative can legally grow the cannabis and legally sell it to you. Uh, or rather, as part of the cooperative, you can get a share of the cooperative's growth, if you see what I mean. Um, what I prefer about that model is it's not for profit, it's not mm. controlled by corporations, there's no advertising. I don't think we should have advertising of anything, including alcohol or cigarettes. Okay, yeah. uh, I think that should all be banned. Um, you know, it seems to me the, 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 the best model for, for cannabis legalization, although, as I say, you know, what they've done in Washington, Colorado is a lot better than what we do in Britain and Australia and other places. So, um, yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think changing that picture of what a drug use... If I say to someone, picture a cannabis smoker, most people don't picture Richard Branson, who is a cannabis <laughs> smoker, right? Um, and this is partly... Um, this is really demystifying drug use in the way that we've demystified alcohol use. If I said to you, you know, picture an alcohol user, 
you, you picture going into a bar on a Saturday night and someone having a good time and, you know, and you may also be aware that in that bar there will be a very small number of people who might be alcoholics and they need our love and support to turn their lives around. But you know that alcoholics are a tiny minority, about, they're around 10% of alcohol users. Um, now, that's actually true of all drugs. And I would urge everyone to read Carl Hart's work, brilliant professor at mm-hmm. Columbia University. He's looked at all of this um, in great detail, you know, the vast majority of people uh, who use drugs are not addicts. And it's interesting, another interesting thing actually is that ratio can change according to social factors. So if you look at, uh, give you an example, in the 18th century in, in London, well in Britain, huge numbers of people are driven out of the countryside into these disgusting urban slums in London. And, and what happens is what's called the gin craze, right, where there's this huge rise in alcoholism. Now at the time, what you got was a lot like what's happening with ice in Australia. People said, look at this unbelievably evil drug, gin, which hijacks people, which takes them over. Actually, it was widely believed that it caused spontaneous human combustion if you drank <laughs> enough gin. Seriously, this was reported by the press at the time. Um, Things haven't changed much. <laughs> exactly. If we now look back at that, what we see, of course, is, oh, it wasn't the gin. It was that people's lives were really awful. They were, you know, they were really traumatised. They had no options. They were really miserable. And as a result, they anaesthetised themselves and dulled themselves with whatever they could get, right? Uh, And actually now, you know, everyone listening to this could go and could be drinking gin now legally, and very few of them will be. It's not the demon drug. It's the social circumstances. So it's not like there's only ever 10% of drug users who become addicts. It depends on the social context. And if, you know, well, look at the Aboriginal peoples of Australia, right? It's been well documented there are higher levels of alcoholism and drug addiction among Aboriginal people. Mm. And sometimes you get this ridiculous racist claim that Aboriginal people can't metabolise alcohol like everyone else. Well, gee, it could be that. Or it could be that we subjected them, and I say we because British people did it, <laughs> we subjected them to a genocide uh, and the traumatised and horror, you know, and, and broken survivors have been treated appallingly ever since and denied loads of basic opportunities. Do you think maybe that might be the factor rather than something Mm. in their metabolism? You know, so these things are, I think most people at some level know this. When they hear it, they know it's true. But um, these myths are still promoted. It's extraordinary listening to the things that are said by Australian authorities at the moment about ICE. And also this, this, you know, Tony Abbott, we're going to spend all this money to keep ICE physically out of Australia. You can't even keep ice out of your prisons. Mm. And you've got a walled perimeter where you pay someone to walk around it the whole time. The idea that you're going to keep drugs out of a country like Australia with a border, borders like Australia's, is it's the magical thinking like thinking a drug can give you superhuman strength. It's, it's like something a, 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 chi- a not very bright child would say. Mm. I, I suspect that uh, the, the, the drug war narrative has been uh, ramped up because this particular government is on its last feet and it will be taken down next year. Uh, I, can, I can, Sorry, I'm feeling quite confident <laughs> in my political predictions, but uh, I feel like this is a strategy to ramp up the fear in those who still don't understand uh, in order to try and get some cheap political capital. There was just a couple more minutes with, with Johan Hari, but unfortunately we've run out of time. I will put the, uh, the well, the uh, whole thing will be available uh, online. Uh, if you want uh, more information on anything that we've talked about today on the show, head along to the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, and to the In Psychedelia po- uh, program page. Plenty of information there. You can get tickets to go and see Johan Hari live in Melbourne this Wednesday night. Head to the In Psychedelia website. We've got a competition. We just need... 
a simple harm reduction tip from yourself. Something uh, that you do, uh, or maybe a group of friends do, to uh, reduce any potential for harm when you're taking a drug, whether that's something like uh, a caffeine uh, or if it's something uh, uh, more of a more illicit nature. Get in contact with us in psychedelia.org is the website. We'll be back from 2pm next week. Uh, Queering the Air is up next on 3CR Community Radio, 855am digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. This is In Psychedelia. Comments, complaints or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website. 3cr.org.au and head to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email. Encyclopedia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, Direct Line provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. In Psychedelia, we'll be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. You've been listening to In Psychedelia, a 3CR community radio podcast. For more information on anything you've heard in this program, head along to 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the In Psychedelia program page.